Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up with Keith Coughlin this morning. He's the executive chairman at European Metals. They've got a lithium project in the Czech Republic. We talked through the recent EIA submission, ESG in general, the macro thematic for uh, lithium and EV in Europe. Uh, a lot of money being bandied around through grants and funds. And we talk about how they insert themselves into that and how this thing gets funded because they're moving towards a DFS decision in Q1 of next year. And if you want our thoughts on the conversation, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com. Keith, how are you doing, sir? Very well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Good, good, good to have you back on. Um, how have you been? How are things in Paris? All good? Uh, Perth's still good, still not a bad place to be uh, given the world that we currently live in. The isolation is quite an advantage at the moment, but I feel a little stuck here. No, you just, just, just refer to it. We can refer to it as splendid isolation. I'm getting used to it. I'm liking it. Um, hey, well, like we we're gonna we caught up with you the beginning of March, and there's a few things that you've been up to um, that we want to talk about. But before we do, why don't you give us uh, people new to this story? Give them a one minute overview of the business, and I'll pick it up from there. Sure, no problem. So, European Metals is developing this Sinovitz lithium project. It's uh, by far the largest hard rock lithium resource in Europe. Um, we're at a definitive feasibility study stage with that due to be completed early next year, moving to final investment decision. Uh, we, uh, we've completed two PFSs on the project. It's a very large project, an MPV, uh, according to the last PFS, 1.1 billion US dollars, IRR post-tax 29%, and uh, with the ability to produce 25,000 tonnes of battery-grade lithium hydroxide a year, for the market that uh, is growing the fastest in the world, the European lithium market. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I'm going to refer people to the link below, which uh, will go to the previous interview that we did, where we got into business plan, strategy, people, team, etc. So you can go there and look at that. I don't need to go over that today. I want to talk about some of the stuff that you've been up to. But before we do, let's talk about the lithium market at the moment. It kind of seems to be just having had a spurt at the beginning of the year, it seems to sort of settle down, having a bit of a breather at the moment. I agree if you're referring to the lithium equities market, you know, the lithium market itself, the underlying market is still very strong and lithium price keeps going up. Supply demand equation there is very much in favour of the of the producers. But yes, you're right. The, the demand for lithium equities is having a little bit of a rest. Probably no great surprise. There was a very, very strong move in the, in the sector from, really from, from Tesla uh, battery day right through till about the end of February. There were some billions of dollars raised in the sector in that period of time, and it's just natural that that takes a bit of steam out of the sector and takes a little while to digest that sort of, uh, that sort of money. Okay, well, well, I'm going to take advantage of your experience in the past. You've, you've traded a bit, you know, these things. Do you think that some of the uranium equities have got, a, got ahead of themselves? Uh, is, is that hence, hence oh, the reason? Absolutely, user? yeah. Because you're right. The, the, whatever lithium product you're looking at, the, the trend is just up. It keeps it keeps moving up. You'd normally expect lithium equities to follow that. But um, are we starting to sort of work out who the players are and the players aren't in terms of the equities? It, 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 that's generally what happens, isn't it? You know, um, you know, to coin a cliche, the rising tide lifts all boats. But then um, when, when the dust settles, people get a little more selective everything tends to drift back and then the good ones, you know, 
tend to to show their true colours and, and move ahead again. I, I think that's, well, it's a thematic that's running through all of our conversations at the moment, no matter what the commodity um, is. And and can we just talk about that a little bit? Because we talk about hard rock and we've talked about some of the newer technologies, that, you know, the DLE, um, even the brines I'll, I'll throw in there. Um, are we starting to see a sort of bifurcation in terms of where people are uh, gravitating towards in terms of their investments, do you think? Uh, I, th- I think when things when things get a little toppy in the sector, people tend to run to what they know best, you know, what, what uh, the market understands best or perhaps is best uh, most comfortable with in the lithium market is is hard rocks, spodumene concentrate. It's kind of the mainstay. Uh, you know, Brian's Brian's come and go in, in favour a little, I think. Um, you know, but it's, it's and it's it's no um, surprise that I think the gains we've seen and the the M and A activity that we've seen in the last couple of months has been predominantly in that spodumene con sector. So I, I don't think there's any surprise in that. Um, you know. If things get a little toppy, it's the it's the slightly different things that tend to suffer a little more or earlier. Right, but there's room for them. Absolutely, They'd, you know, if you look at the supply demand equation for lithium, it, it's it's increasing dramatically on the demand side, and the supply side can't possibly react quickly enough. You know, we we saw Arbamol make an announcement a week or two ago that they're effectively saying that you know right now they're out of lithium. And I think that's echoed across most of the majors without them necessarily making those sort of statements. Um, and, and we're also seeing it in the activity of discussions with potential off-takers. You know, I think they've exhausted uh, what they can buy from the majors, from the, the incumbent producers. And I think the next stage is to, to, to move on to the, the uh, developing com- companies and seeing what can be done there. Do you expect there to be more eminent? We've seen it. We've seen a few, few um, companies being picked up um, at different, different, whatever you think the valuations. But there's M and A is is definitely part of the, the the makeup at the moment. Can we continue to see more? I, I think without any doubt we'll see continued M and A activity in the lithium space. I mean, so when when you've got someone you know as as, as large as that going, hey, we've run out of lithium, or we we, we can't see line of sight to lithium. That's slightly worrying. You know, we've been saying for some time about the the supply demand equation, um, and it it is taking a little while to sink in. But if we look at just Europe, for example, you know, it, the, the numbers that are generally quoted about demand for in Europe now uh, for twenty thirty is three hundred thousand tons. Um, now that that's a lot of lithium, you know, comparative to what's made in the world, it's a hell of a lot of lithium, and and obviously within Europe. There is no current supply. No one produces battery-grade lithium materials in Europe at all currently, period. And, and, you know, the EU has this statement that they want to be 80% self-sufficient in lithium production by 2025, which isn't going to happen. But the fact is that it's such a, it's a strong aspirational statement. I think it's indicative of, certainly indicative of what the EU wants to happen, but I think that's being echoed by other regions, other other countries, et cetera, in regards to trying to secure supply going forward. Very interesting statement, I thought, out of uh, out of Biden the last day or two about wanting to outsource, um, you know, lithium metals from other countries and not, not so much from within the US. That's a very interesting statement. 
But, you know, I'm not sure from where, you know, I'm not sure who has the sort of um, resources, the sort of reserves that the US would require if it got fully embraced in, in, in the EV future. It's, well, it's a very, very big market. Well, it's a very, very big statement from, from two fronts. It's, it's, it's government getting involved in commercial business. I mean, we, we've seen this in other commodities where, you know, people hope that the government, the US government steps in because it it's, uh, seems like cheap money. Um, so, you know, do you expect Biden to actually do something about that in terms of putting some money up to it? And secondly, it's big because he's saying, oh, um, this kind of critical minerals component of, of the narrative that's going on over there at the moment um, is about, well, can we be self-sustaining? Do we, do we put up walls and say, uh, let's do this ourselves where we can, or do we need to go and find a bunch of friends? But all the friends are doing the same thing. They're finding new partnerships. We talk about e- e- European ecosystems, Asian ecosystems, Chinese ecosystems, you know. People... This stuff is becoming harder to get, more expensive to get, and the demand is going through the roof. So is that reasonable for the US to expect that they can go and make some friends and feed into their system? I'm not sure. I think it, I think it's contrary to what we've seen in the last 12 months globally. You know, one of the, one of the reactions to the COVID crisis was to contract to local supply chains where possible. You know, it, it highlighted amongst a lot of other things that highlighted the the dangers in relying on global supply chains. So when you have that coupled with, you know, some anti-China sentiment globally, and bearing in mind China still controls 80 plus percent of battery grade lithium chemicals today, uh, you know, you can see why someone like the EU has said, no, no, we want to be self-sufficient as much as possible. So I think President Biden's statements are quite contrary to, to that sort of um, sentiment um, and, and I think it's in an, an effort to appease the environmentalists within the US but all you're really doing is shifting the problem somewhere else. You're shifting the, yeah exactly you're shifting the problem somewhere else it just became a little bit more expensive and you know for all the talk of ESG and, and, and green energy and so forth you're just making your carbon footprint just that little bit bigger if you're, if you're schlepping commodities around the world. It, it, it's kind of mixed exactly. messages. And, and for, for lithium, that's already an issue. You know, obviously most of the world's lithium is now made in the former spodumene concentrate down here in Western Australia, but the majority of it is then shipped six or so thousand kilometres to China for production. So, you know, you have to add to the, um, the CO2 footprint by doing that, particularly when you consider that 94% of everything that's shipped is waste. Well, let's talk about you guys in the context of Europe, okay? So we've seen a lot of um, European countries, obviously as part of the EU, but also companies coming together um, with joint ventures to build out this EV ecosystem. The automotive OEM guys are applying hundreds of billions of dollars into that. You know, the EU has put up huge um, funds and made money available cheaply um, to to further that. Are you seeing the same sort of conversation, you know, that we just talked about with Biden happening in Europe? Are they or are they closing up shop and saying, well, let's let's truly try and make this a self sufficient environment? I think that the the aspiration is definitely there to do that, but it, it's a big ask. You know, it, if you look at or just talking from lithium's perspective for the moment, if you look at all of the known resources of lithium in the EU or even in Europe, 
you know, if you add Enrio's project uh, in Europe but not in the EU, if they all came into production on time, you know, at nameplate Cassie, there's still not enough lithium in all of those projects to satisfy the demand that we're seeing emerging in the EU. So there, need, there does need to be a two-phase solution for the EU to be able to deliver the number of EVs that are on the cards to be delivered in the region. And what about this, again, you mentioned a second ago in the context of you know, Biden's slightly contrary view, you know, you've got um, people opposed to mining in the States. Are you seeing that in Europe? You know, so the Europeans are talking the language of, oh, we need to be self-sufficient. We, there's the, the demand for our supply, even if everyone operates at you know, nameplate capacity and gets into production on time, and they can access the money cheaply. Um, are they making it easy for mining companies to actually get on and with their business? Not, not really, not necessarily. You know, there are still challenges, and we saw within the last few weeks we saw one particular company, you know, lose a permit um, in in Spain. You know, a lithium, a, a, a hopeful lithium production company. So it's not it's not any given that these projects will. In, in the mainstream, get the permits that they require to get up and running. The EU is definitely uh, supportive of it happening, but it, that's not a carte blanche. You know, the way that the, way that the, the region operates, it's, it's not just an automatic rubber stamp because the EU is supportive or the EU sees the need to develop, you know, the region's own critical raw materials. Um, you know, you still need to go through the process and, and you know, Europe is one of the greenest uh, places in the world, um, you know, has been for some time and, and mining per se has been a dirty word for some time in that part of the world. Well, it's because it's, I guess the density of the population is, is yeah. the factor. Population density, all, all those sorts of things. Yeah. But, you know, they, they have certainly, I think, come to a greater realisation that uh, simply buying raw materials from other parts of the world doesn't actually solve the problem from a global point of view. No, it just moves it. Exactly, it just you're outsourcing the problem. Not uh, NIMBYs, isn't it? Not in my backyard. And um, so, so with regards to that, then yeah, we know the company you're talking about. We've inter- we've interviewed them, they, they, and um, that was a lot of local opposition. And I guess that leads us on nicely to ESG. And we will talk about your company, but I'm I'm, I'm intrigued by your thinking and your knowledge of what's going on in Europe. Um, the, the ESG component is critical, but it's it's multifaceted. There's so many aspects to it. In fact, there's so many aspects to it. It makes it difficult for junior companies to be able to allocate the time and resources to it, financial and otherwise. Um, so sometimes processes get ignored or cut off um, or delayed, and that impacts them. So again, it's answering a question you know put to us a few months ago now by people going, "This ESG stuff is just a waste of." Time, just get on with the mining. Um, we need the resources, and it, it doesn't quite work like that anymore. No, I, I, there's always going to be both sides competing, and all you can really do is to, you know, be the best possible ESG corporate citizen that you can be. Um, what we, are, you know, we are now seeing uh, an industry emerge, you know, an ESG management reporting, consulting industry emerge because this is becoming such a big issue. And the advantage of that that industry emerging is that you start to get uh, yardsticks, measurement systems that are comparative. So you can actually start to assess one project versus another 
because the, the measurement criteria are being standardised and it's being done by independent global consultants. So from that point of view, that is positive. It's certainly positive for you if you have a project that ticks the ESG boxes. Happily, we believe that we have. Um, but it certainly means not all projects are alike. Now, and then if you kick that down to the next stage, so the, the people who buy our lithium, so let's say it's an automotive company that buys our lithium and puts it into their electric vehicles. When they're assessed on the CO2 footprint of that vehicle, it goes all the way back to where they bought their lithium, where they bought this, where they bought that. So no one can, can operate it in isolation anymore. It's the whole supply chain that's being interrogated. And, you know, so that's another reason why the EU, for example, says, well, we want to develop our own critical raw materials as much as possible because just from the point of view of distance, you know, what we spoke about earlier, the CO2 um, impact of, of shipping vast distances, uh, it, it just improves the, the overall emissions of that end product, of that end vehicle. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. It's, there's always going to be groups that don't, Whatever you do, don't want to see it in their backyards. Okay, they, 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 and they're and they're very, um, they're very vociferous about that, and they won't change their mind. Their minds will not be be changed, despite needing the materials for their phones, their cars, their houses, whatever they, to 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 come out of the ground. Um, and I think, do you, do you think that the this kind of uh, new ESG um, environment we're seeing with consultants justifying certain behaviors, et cetera. Is that just, is that ever going to be able to appease those, those people? Or is it just, it's of the moment and it's, it's something that we've got to, we've, we've got to do, but the, the reality is we're going to be digging that stuff out of the ground because we're going to need it. That's, that's the truth, isn't it? I think there'll always be a minority who won't be appeased, you know, what, whatever solution you come up with. Um, but you know, I think part of the benefit of globalisation from, from this specific perspective is that people do begin to understand that, you know, it's just as bad buying this from, you know, a country in Africa where we don't much care about, you know, what happens or didn't previously. You know, it is actually just as big a problem as if we're producing it ourselves. So we just simply need to produce it ourselves in the absolute best possible way that we can and not create more problems than we solve. Okay. So talking of which, you've submitted your EIA. Can you? Yes. <laughs> we have uh, a, a critical path item, you know, on the way to final mining permit. Um, you know, submitting the EIA is the culmination of a couple of years of work, you know, with your baseline studies and, and the like, our own baseline studies, but also, you know, studies from independent groups as well. And as we say, you know, the that Europe is, is uh, an area in which environmental issues are, are heavily uh, regulated and followed. Um, and so, you know, happily, the independent studies that we've submitted along with the EIA are all positive. You know, we, we, we do benefit from the fact that we are re-entering a historic underground mine. So, you know, there's no doubt that that has a, a lower impact on, on the environment, a lower impact on the population than breaking new ground or, you know, trying to, to dig an open pit in the middle of Europe. Um, obviously, down here in Western Australia, with our population density and what have you, going and digging an open pit is what we do. But, you know, it's not something that's going to happen in Europe. 
So, you know, we, we, we benefited on all fronts from the fact that it's underground, so there's no visual pollution at surface, there's no dust, noise, what have you. All of the front end will be underground and then we, you know, we'll slurry pipe the concentrate to the processing plant. So, you know, not even having trucks driving through the local village. And, that, you know, you have to go down to that level of detail in, in considering um, all of your ESG responsibilities. Were there any kind of nuances to the EIA in the Czech Republic? No, not really. Not not really. It's you know we had a there are a couple of specific you know things we had to consider. You know without without you know boring you with too much detail. You know there's a a particular um, bird, the black grouse. You know we had to make special consideration there. All those sorts of things. So that was particular to our project, but I'm sure all projects have their own you know nuances like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Greater crested newt. It used to be the one around here when we're building um <laughs> okay and the, the other the other thing that's happened is you've done some uh, cycle tests as well what, what's that thrown up no, nothing unusual no just all good positive news so obviously you know the dfs is there to prove you know what we've postulated in the pfs but to bring it to a, a narrower you know band of uh, of uh, or a higher band of certainty we we had scheduled six log cycle tests to, um, to to finally nail the process flow sheet. We did that in four and, you know, cancelled the last two tests. So that was all very positive. We, you know, all of these little tweaks that we are working on or that we have worked on, you know, over the last couple of years, in themselves, each individual one may not seem like it's that important, you know, to increase your overall lithium recovery by a percentage or two. But at the end of the day, it all just adds up to a, a better project, a better project economically, you know, better recoveries mean better profitability. It also means um, you dig up less rock to create more lithium or more lithium hydroxide. So it also goes to your carbon footprint and, and your SG credentials as well. So it's just, it's comforting and it's very pleasing to see what, you know, my technical team, certainly not me, but what my technical team have been working so hard on for the last couple of years to see it come through, you know, with flying colours is, uh, is, is very pleasing. So when you, when you say, right, we, we did four lock cycle tasks, but we, and we, we, but we cancelled two others. I mean, what decision? Like you got enough information or you didn't want to spend the money? Yes, yeah, or yeah. Basically, it gave you the answers you needed. Oh, look, it's, you know, that incrementally, they're not, you know, they're not that expensive in each one, but it's, it's a matter of, you know, proving the flow sheet. And when you've proven it, you've you've proven it. So, you know, there's no need to, to carry on. We thought it would take six tests. It took four. Okay, okay, fine. And then and so working towards this DFS, and you said early next year, Q1, Q2 next year, and some sort of FID on Q1, that. Yeah. Q1 you're going for. Okay, fantastic. Um, so you've got the money to be able to get to that point, I think, from, I remember from before. Yes, correct. Right, but that means between now and then, I assume you're in the market talking about how you go and raise the money to actually build this thing out, right? How's that going? Correct. So, so that and that's you know that's a fluid discussion. It, it it started some time ago. You start the discussions with the the potential financiers very early because they may they they may have input to what you're doing along the way. Um, one of the one of the areas of cooperation with the European Union that we have via this collaborative agreement we have with the European Institute of Innovation and Technology 
is in them introducing us to potential financiers within Europe, and that's in a few different forms. So specifically, they are assisting us with uh, grant applications. You know, there's quite a bit of money, public money, that has been put aside in various grant schemes, a number of which we believe, you know, we qualify for. And, and this is part of the EU's overall uh, support of developing an electric vehicle future, a battery industry, and, and developing the critical raw materials. So we have one arm of the EU helping us apply to another arm of the EU for, you know, inclusion in the grant schemes. We believe there'll also be some, if you like, soft debt through export credit finance, you know, soft government debt, et cetera, et cetera, but then also a commercial debt component, you know, and, and again, uh, the EU body is, is helping us in those relationships. So, you know, those conversations are ongoing for some time. It's not like you finish your definitive feasibility and then you start talking to people about the money because obviously, you know, that would cause you some significant delay. So we would hope that there's not, a, there's not a great deal of time between the completion of the definitive feasibility study and, and ticking that final investment decision off and um, having money and beginning, beginning construction. So, you know, we will have to raise a portion of the 500-odd million that I think the CapEx will be, US dollars. Um, we will have to raise a portion of that in equity. Um, you know, European Metals will have uh, responsibility for half of that and our, our partner chairs will have the responsibility for the other half. And those are discussions that you tend to have once you have an understanding of uh, what the debt or non-equity component of the funding looks like. But it's much, that's a much easier conversation to have. So you, you, we talked about previously about EIT, Inner Energy, amongst others within Europe. So is, is someone helping coordinate all of, because there's lots of groups and funds and grants. And so it, it's, it's complicated, but it, it, the money's there and you, it's a lot of paperwork. But have you got a group helping you with that or are you, you finding you're navigating that yourself? Well, within Europe, the IT is, is helping us. We haven't uh, formally appointed our debt consultants as yet, but you know we are in discussion. We have a short list. Okay. And then Cinevets as well, they're party to those conversations or are you having those discussions separately? I mean, how does that partnership look? So Chez. So Cinevets Ch- is oh, sorry, the sorry, project Ch- company. Sorry, yeah. So Chez. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no Got problem. there in the end. <laughs> um, yeah, look, so the feeling at this point in time without formalising it is that the each part, party will contribute its own equity component and, you know, the, the non-equity component, the debt plus, you know, whatever else is at a project level. Got it. Okay. Um, right. And so, and your expectation around, because you talked about soft debt in there. Explain, what do you, what do you mean by soft debt? Things like uh, export credit finance, you know, when securing material uh, resources, what have you, from, from, you know, various companies in various countries, uh, you know, you tend to be able to then raise debt by the the export credit agencies of that particular country. Yeah, but, but, but so if you go and source a hundred million, you know, dollars worth of equipment out of Germany, you know, you you will get a benefit from that in in discussions with the German export credit agencies. Right, but it's it just want to convert it into the economics is how much cheaper is that kind of debt versus something that you would have to go out and find in terms of securitization, etc. Well, yeah, well, we haven't, you know, we haven't finalised what those numbers look like. So, you know, I can't, I can't put a percentage figure on it for you, but, you know, you, you potentially talking, you know, a half, half of the interest rate, perhaps a little less. Right. 
So it's meaningful. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, on on you know what would probably ultimately be three hundred and fifty million US of of debt. Um, yeah, you know, a couple of percent makes a difference. I mean, most projects, most mining projects, you know, struggling the first few years, struggling to ramp up. You know, if you've got any delays, you know, any problems with your uh, commissioning and what have you, you know, that's when it that's when it starts to bite. So if you've got, you know, a slightly uh, lower repayment schedule for those first few years because you've managed to secure some, some you know, some better finance, it, it can make a significant significant difference. So just in terms of people looking in from outside, people perhaps not necessarily shareholders currently, but, but potential shareholders looking in, because you're sitting at 120 million market cap, right? And if, if 120 million market cap companies coming to me and asking for, for, for debt uh, of the sorts of scale that you were talking about normally, I'd be a bit nervous, but because of this European ecosystem and the, the grants and the funds and this determination by the Europeans to support European-based projects, you feel that you can get this thing over the line? Look, I think so, yes. You know, And we're having this conversation today where, you know, as we said right at the start, the market's a little soggy. You know, If we were having this conversation in January, you, know, you probably wouldn't have any doubt at all that we'd be able to go and, and raise that money. You know, So timing... Timing does have some impact, um, but you know, there, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that the EU is fully committed to developing a battery industry, fully committed to an electric vehicle future, and you know, is well aware that developing the region's own critical raw materials is is very important in that equation. So I do think that we will get strong support um, through that avenue. And if they just simply take the lead in a portion of the of the financing package, it makes the rest of that package significantly easier to come by. Okay, brilliant. Great catch up. You've got a few things to do between now and Q1. Um, so stay in touch, let us know how you get on with things. And certainly with regards to some of these other conversations, because again, you know, we're seeing so OEMs and automo- automotive companies also coming in there. You know, they're, they're also part of that equation, parts of those discussions in terms of securing forward supply, because that is a noise which is coming out a lot from the conversations that we're having. They are starting to get concerned. Yeah. Their buyers are concerned about what 2025 looks like, let alone 2030. It's interesting times. Yeah, I, I agree com- I agree completely with that statement. That It's a sentiment that we're hearing as well. Okay, brilliant. Well, okay, we'll stay in touch and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Matt. All the best. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.